The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We're going to start today with a magazine called McClure's and a magazine publisher, Samuel Sidney McClure. He was born in 1857 in Northern Ireland. His father died when he was eight, and his mother, facing hard times, emigrated to America, where they wound up on a farm in Indiana, desperately poor. Young Samuel worked hard, made his way through high school into Knox College, where he co-founded a student newspaper. That gave him the taste for the journalism business, and he headed off to New York City, where fortunes were made. He was an immigrant and not well-connected, but immigrants who grew up speaking English had at least that much of an advantage. And he had energy, too, and ideas, and a kind of frenzy to succeed. He developed an idea for a syndicate that you could sell one article to multiple smaller outlets, newspapers, and magazines. And the McClure Syndicate, established in 1884 when he was 27, began that entire industry. If you're like me, and you grew up with comic strips that ran in a few hundred newspapers, and advice columns, and op-eds, and recipes, and Omar Sharif's chess notes, and all that stuff, that pretty much started with McClure and his idea, which he believed in as if it were a religion. But he was also a restless man. He was probably what we would now view as manic-depressive, and he couldn't work with others very well, and he could not sit still. In 1893, he founded McClure's Magazine, which he thought of when talking to Rudyard Kipling, and Kipling later said that he thought that McClure had thought of the idea and spent the next 12 hours talking about it. For the next 18 years, McClure ran McClure's Magazine, and it was well known as a leading muckraking magazine with articles by journalistic heroes like Ida Tarbell, who took on Standard Oil. McClure had discovered Tarbell, He'd seen her writings about French public works. McClure had read an article of hers called The Paving of the Streets of Paris by Monsieur Alphand, which McClure's syndicate had syndicated. And McClure said to his partner, this girl can write. Let's get her to write for our magazine. We need her. And so they did. They got her to write about uh, a biography of Napoleon Bonaparte and Abraham Lincoln, and then they left her alone to write about her passion, Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller, a man who had crushed her father. Her father was an oil man, a small one, and Rockefeller ran over him like a steamroller, leaving Tarbell's father as like a little black smudge on the Pennsylvania landscape. Actually, her father was in Iowa when he was bankrupted. He was planning to move the family there. He got there, went broke. God, (laughs) it was an economic downturn and he had so little money that he walked home to Pennsylvania. For those of you wondering how someone walks that far in the 19th century, it took him 18 months and he had to take jobs teaching school to rural country kids just to stay alive. 18 months And when he showed up at home, finally back in Pennsylvania, young Ida didn't recognize him. And she said, go away, bad man. The pain of that never left her. And when she grew older, she wrote a masterpiece of investigative journalism all about Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller. And she did it for the wild genius McClure, who ran it in his magazine. 
Sometime we'll do a whole show about Ida Tarbell, that amazing woman. But for now, we're headed toward another amazing woman. But first, let's talk about Sam McClure, who had edited Ida Tarbell. This is what McClure said about editors. What an editor does, he said, is give a writer a chance to be printed. An editor is like a farmer. He went on to explain, the farmer doesn't make the wheat. The farmer gives the wheat a chance to grow. And that's what McClure did. He gave writers money and room, even setting aside the muckraking journalists that made McClure's famous and important. He was a, a great discoverer of talent and a great publisher of fiction. McClure syndicated or published in his own magazine works by J.M. Barry, Stephen Crane, Arthur Conan Doyle, Jack London, Frank Norris, Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark Twain, William Dean Howells, and many others. He gave them money and got out of their way. His personality drove away some of his best writers in the end. He couldn't sit still. Kipling once said, for eight or 18 consecutive hours, that cyclone in a frock coat whirled round our little shanty, explaining, exhorting, and prophesying. He is a great man, but he'd kill me in a week with mere surplus of energy. End quote. McClure's magazine was the best and the brightest, the best illustrated, the best articles, the most famous, maybe, in an era when journalism and magazines were king. In this era of corruption and growing America, and in this era before television or radio or film. Remember that a book like The Great Gatsby might sell 10,000 copies in the 1920s. McClure's magazine in 1900 was already selling hundreds of thousands of copies each month, and that was just one of many comparable magazines at the turn of the century. Collier's and the Saturday Evening Post also had hundreds of thousands of subscribers, and those came out once a week. And like McClure's, they all published short fiction and serialized novels. So, Samuel McClure, great discoverer of talent, unable to sit still, a celebrity, a business genius, who also went broke a lot, mercurial, demanding, wild-eyed, passionate, acquisitive. His writers left him, broke off on their own, and started another magazine. And then he turned to a young woman who was from Nebraska by way of Pittsburgh. She was 16 years younger than he was, but he trusted her to edit his magazine, to calm the storm, to guide the magazine with a hand steadier than he himself had ever been able to supply. Her name was Willa Cather. We will have her story today on the History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you joined us today. Willa Cather. We have been circling around her forever. She's been on our list, I think, since day one. She was an editor, a farmer of wheat, as McClure had it, but she was also the wheat, which in this analogy is a writer. And she decided not just to write journalism, but to write fiction, her first love and her higher calling, in her view. She was immediately successful, writing several acclaimed novels and turning her into one of America's great canonical writers with books like O Pioneers and The Song of the Lark and My Antonia and other novels too. 
We will be joined by a special guest today, Lauren Marino, author of a book called Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves Into History, which is the kind of book you start to read and can't stop. Potato chips and chocolates and stories of women who overcame great odds to become great historical figures through their writing. The book doesn't have room for the poets. That might have to be a separate volume. Let's hope so anyway. Maybe that's volume two. But for this book, in this book, we have Lauren's beautiful mini essays on everyone from Lady Murasaki to Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, two writers we've talked about here in the history of literature. Actually, we've talked about a lot of the writers in the book. If you like this podcast, you will want to check out this book written by Lauren, a self-confessed book addict. And you will want to consider giving this book to the young person in your life or young people. You'll think of girls that you know, but it's a good gift for boys as well. I have no problem encouraging my sons to take a look at the heroes in this book. Their stories are so inspirational. I had the chance to talk to Lauren, and I asked her for a few choices of someone she might like to discuss, and Willa Cather was at the top of her list. So we'll have that conversation for you today. And then on Thursday, we'll look more closely at Willa Cather and her politics, her novels, her falling out with the critics, and we'll try to put her life and career in place in some kind of perspective. But today, we focus on her biographical story from her childhood up to her move to New York and beyond. And we talk to Lauren about Willa and the bookish broads in general. And we also talk to her about another book that Lauren wrote about Dolly Parton, who, by the way, in addition to being an amazing entertainer, has a great passion for books herself. And she's brought millions of books to school children, 154 million books given away for free to school children through her Imagination Library. Let's take a quick break, then come back with Lauren Marino and the story of Willa Cather. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Lauren Marino, a publishing executive who has worked with many celebrities, doctors, and other experts on their books. She's also the author of the illustrated book, What Would Dolly Do? She's here today to talk about her new book, Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves Into History. Lauren Marino, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. 
Thank you, Jack. Nice to talk with you. Okay, so I wanted to start with a question or two about your previous book, which came out a couple of years ago and was called What Would Dolly Do? How to Be a Diamond in a Rhinestone World. Uh, Dolly Parton has had quite a year. She was helping to fund a a coronavirus vaccine, and she gave a wonderful interview about discrimination with that quote of don't be a dumbass, uh, which I enjoyed. You seem like you were a little bit ahead of the curve in 2018, and I'm wondering what drew you to the wit and wisdom of Dolly Parton? Well, I, I tell a story in the introduction to the book about how I was at a transitional time in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I needed some inspiration, let's put it that way. Yeah. So uh, I think when you're looking for something or you're looking for inspiration, you can find it. And I kept, like, at all of these various points, Dolly Parton kept showing up. And uh, when you start paying attention to something or it strikes you in some emotional way, if it's emotionally resonant, you know, you start recognizing it. It's like vocabulary when you learn a new yeah. word, then all of a sudden you see that word everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I had gone to the theater. My friends had come to visit me and took me to the theater to cheer me up. And they, we went to see Kristen Chenoweth's One Woman Show, which was an eight-night-only show. And... We went there, and in the middle of it, she did this whole monologue about how growing up, she did not have any female role models. She didn't really have a woman who did what it was that she wanted to do. Dolly Parton was her only role model. And I was very moved by this monologue. And then she broke into one of Dolly's songs, Little Sparrow. And for whatever reason, I mean, it's it's a simple song, Mm -hmm. but it struck me, and I burst into tears. And I said, well, that was something. What was that all about? And then I just started seeing, like, I became very hyper aware of Dolly Parton. Um, And so I went on, you know, this is where Amazon is a wonderful thing. I could find all of these old books about Dolly Parton that were long out of print, including her, um, her autobiography from the 80s. And I started reading about her. And the more I read about her, the more amazing I found her to be. She was so much more than what I ever thought she was, which I think is true. Like, I think now the world is catching up to all of the amazing things that Dolly Parton is and all of her accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But most people, if you say who wrote, I will always love you, they will say Whitney Houston, unless they know that it was Dolly Parton who wrote that song and that she has a catalog of 4,000 songs uh, that she's really a songwriter yeah. and an artist. More so, I mean, she's a fabulous performer. She's a movie producer. She's a huge philanthropist. She runs the imagine. She founded and runs the Imagination Library, which is one of the biggest literacy organizations in the world, and has given away 150 million free books to children. And she's funded the. So, so I think I just um, I became aware of her through an emotional experience and through her music, and then. It just, it, it sort of just started to add up as I researched about her. And then one night, I, this may sound a little nutty, but this is, you know, divine inspiration, if you will. Uh, I had a dream and it woke me up in the middle of the night, which is how a lot of my best ideas happen. Yeah. I woke up and it was Dolly Parton in my dream, like pointing her finger at me and saying, you know, Lauren, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and pull it together. What would Dolly do? Mm. And I woke up and I just started writing notes 
And then I started doing the research and I couldn't believe, I, I Googled what would Dolly do the next day and I couldn't believe there had not been a book <laughs> like this. Right, right. And um, so that, I mean, that's, you know, that's the, that's the long story. I yeah. The short, long story of how it came to be. Right. It's a beautiful story. I mean, she's such a great figure. I think, I think a lot of people might be a little bit familiar with her as kind of a rags to riches story, but she was such a, uh, when she has been such a celebrity that I think it's probably gotten a little lost just what a an entrepreneur and how tough she was and what a, a firm person she had to be to navigate her way through that. I think a lot of times her humor and, you know, you, you might you might be mistaken in thinking that she had a guru who turned her into a star or something. Instead, she's had a lot more control of her career and the developments that it's taken that it might seem on the outside. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, Elvis wanted to record I Will Always Love You. And she was very early in her career and she was broke and she could not believe that Elvis wanted to record her song. But then um, Colonel Tom called her the night before they were supposed to record. And he said, Elvis doesn't uh, record anything unless he gets half the royalties mm. and or half the, you know, the publishing rights. Yeah. And she said, I can't do that. This is my art. This is my song. And she said, no. And she said she cried all night, <laughs> but it paid off in the long run because it became yeah. one of her biggest financial successes. So she, she knew what her own worth and, and, and really stood by herself at a time in country music in particular, when women did not have any power and yeah. had to really, you know, work a lot harder. Right. Well, this that's a nice bridge to your new book, Bookish Broads. But but maybe the way I want to ask the question before we get there is, does your experience working in publishing affect how you look at potential books? Because one of the things I was wondering was if you like with the Dolly book, you know, I was wondering if you had had seen a, a need or sensed a niche or or read some market research that said, you know, everyone is interested in Dolly Parton, but there's a, a shortage of books right now in that. It sounds like it was a lot more personal for you. And so for this book, Bookish Broads, was it was it something where you identified here's a, a book that needs to come out, it would fill this particular gap? Or was this, again, something that you felt drawn to and, and compelled to do because you felt a personal connection to the subject? Well, I, th I think that with me, um, you know, because I've been a book editor for many, many years, and I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm currently a book editor, and I had five years where I worked as a writer, which had been a dream of mine when I was growing up in Cincinnati. I used to say, when I grow up, I'm going to be a writer in Greenwich Village. And, oh, um, right. you know, that's exactly what I ended up doing. But I became a, a book editor first, and and I had my time when I was able to really hone my writing and publish my own books, and they come to me organically, and it really has to be a passion project. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I would say that my knowledge of book publishing and my experience as an editor, particularly in the nonfiction area, informs me. Mm -hmm. So I understand. You know, I'm, and I'm always reading a tremendous amount. And even when I wasn't acquiring projects for a publisher as a freelancer, I was, you know, I'm still reading all of the newspapers and magazines and keeping up on the trends and what's happening. So that just kind of is a part of me. I, you know, I'm always thinking of book ideas. I mean, right now I can't be writing them. Uh, other people are writing them. But for this, I just felt like 
you know, I, I went into my career and I chose early on to publish nonfiction. Mm. And it was, a, it was a way for me to be in school for life, right? Constantly reading book proposals and knowing, you know, being on the cutting edge of the new ideas that are coming out into the world on the nonfiction side. But my true love is fiction. Mm. And that's what I keep. That's my special treat that I keep for myself for vacations and time off. And I guess I think having become a published writer and I was looking for some more inspiration and, you know, and it just, it sort of happened the way it happens with Dolly where uh, one thing happens and then it kind of leads to me exploring and then, and then other things start to happen. And with bookish broads, I was, I was, you know, I still read uh, publishers lunch and publishers weekly every day. And, there was an article in there about the American Library Association and the top books in circulation around the world. Mm. And when I kind of I looked at it, I dug deep into it, and there were so you know so many by men and so few by women. And I said, how can that be? Women, I know women are big, the bigger book buyers and book yeah, readers. So right. why would why would the ALA be giving out data? Where, like, did anyone notice that there are barely any women on this list? So I just went, I, I Googled the world's greatest books or best books ever written, and I came upon this, this website and research called thegreatestbooks.org. And they had gone through with an algorithm, uh, they went to 129 best of book lists. Yeah, I'm familiar, I'm familiar with this website. Yeah. Yes, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the New York Times, the London Review of Books, you know, I mean, like very prestigious, um, you know, credentialed sources. And uh, I went and started digging through the master list of the top 100 books. And in the top 50, only eight are by women. And then in the top 100, only 14 are by women. Mm. And I thought, what on what's going on here? Like, this is half of the human experience experience. And I was like, why is that? So I just, I guess I just started researching it and that evolved into bookish broads where I wanted to say, Hey, let's look at history and what were the obstacles that women had to overcome that Mm. men did not have to overcome that, that made it harder for them to write harder for them to get published. And why in the 21st century, are we when you know when there are so many books written by women now and and being bought by women? Why does the, why does the algorithm or why does the um, why do the sources still say that the greatest books ever written were written by men? And then they they throw in they sprinkle in the obvious you know like the usual suspects right. Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, Virginia Woolf, uh, George Eliot. I was like, well, who else? You know, who else has written the great books from the female point of view through history? So that that's when I just, I, you know, I got the Norton Anthology of Women's Literature, and I just started digging into it and tried to figure out what, who was, who was considered the female canon, and how did they get there and why, and what were the commonalities between them, and who was missing from the literature courses that you know, I could explore and and research. Uh, I also wanted to know, really, for me as a writer, uh, and I think a lot like readers, real readers, they love to know the story behind the storytellers. Like, 
what inspired this particular book? What inspired this particular author? What made them become a writer? Um, what did they have to face? Uh, were they a natural born writer? Did they have to learn their craft? I just think there's a lot of curiosity about artists in general and what motivates them. Right. Are they just born that way? So, I, so I guess I just, I, I went in and I, I said, I'm going to just pull this together and, and just start studying these women and go back in history and, and see what the common, the commonalities are and, and figure it out. And, you know, that's, I guess that's how I work. It starts with one thing and then I just start researching out of my own curiosity and then a vision for a book kind of forms in my mind. Right. Well, the end result we have, the book has close to 60 authors by my count, uh, everyone from from Lady Murasaki to medieval mystics to the heavy hitters, the Jane Austens and Brontes and Mary Shelley's of the world to Beatrix Potter and Agatha Christie yep. and Zora Neale Hurston. I'll just list a few more. Eileen Chang and Toni yep. Morrison and Margaret Atwood and Jhumpa Lahiri. So for listeners of the podcast, I'd say we've done episodes on about a third or or half of these writers, and they're all on our list of authors we're hoping to cover eventually. And even for the ones we've covered, though, there were things in your book that I didn't know and I was learning from. And I'm, I want to make sure the listeners understand kind of the, the format of the book. It's illustrated. It has pull-out quotes. Uh, it's very readable. Was there a, a particular audience you had in mind? Was this uh, something you wanted to put in the hands of uh, young women? Or did you have in mind a, a kind of readership for it? Um, yes, I, I think that there have been a lot of books in the past few years for young women, like the Rebel Girls series. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a great series of books about scientists, or books mm -hmm. about the suffragettes. But what was missing was a book about female writers. And mm -hmm. I thought, writers, are like, why, why are they missing? Yeah. Do people not read anymore? Do they not care? You know, the, you know, why are the female writers through history kind of being ignored um, outside of this handful? that we, you know, that we talked about. And so I guess what, you know, when I was meeting with, I wrote a proposal and I had an idea of how I wanted this book to be. And I wanted to make it digestible and to tell the stories behind the storytellers and make suggestions for some of their, um, not to suggest a, a thorough look at all of their works, but a selection of mm. their works that people mm -hmm. might want to, after reading about them, say, huh, that sounds like an interesting person. I'd love to hear what she has to say and sort of turn them to the literature. So it was really, I mean, it's to, it's to, to celebrate these women and to bring readers to them. Uh, but I, I wanted to do it in an accessible and fun way without being too light, because some of these books in the YA space, they're too light. They're too mm. simple. Mm -hmm. and, and these women have led incredibly complicated lives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, originally the essays I wrote were probably about twice as long as they are now. I had so much, I mean, I could have written, you know, little short, you know, I could have written like 30 page books about every single one of them. Yeah. Um, but I had, to, I had to really cut it down and cut it down and try to get down to the essence of what did they contribute? What were their influences? What were their obstacles and, yeah. and what were the challenges in their own personal lives? Um, what were their themes? What were their best known works? Were they known or celebrated in their lifetime or did they face prejudice? So, um, you know, I had, I've tried to keep it simple while still telling some fun, interesting anecdotes that people might not know about them. Right. 
you know, different. So, so and then I, I hired an illustrator and I specifically I wanted it to be illustrated because I know that younger people now like the visual. Um, I don't you know, I think sometimes literature or the classics can be intimidating or even considered boring to some people. Mm. So I wanted to make it fun. And I thought that the, my writing style and the illustrations could make it something that would be fun to look at and fun to read. And yeah. that would then hopefully motivate people to seek these women out. Right. So I think it really goes, you know, it goes across, I think it, certainly, uh, you know, my daughter is 13. She could, you know, it's for her, it's mm-hmm. for people her age, but I have, you know, various women's organizations and book clubs of, you know, women who are much older right. who are having me come talk to them because, you know, they're learning new things about it. And I, I also think there's a, it's a great way to have dialogue between mothers and daughters or grandmothers and granddaughters, where, for example, when I was writing about Louisa May Alcott, uh, and we were in, we were in quarantine, my, we were living with my mother temporarily and my daughter and my mother and I were talking about Louisa May Alcott, the movie, the new movie came out. And so my daughter read the book and it was wonderful to sit at the breakfast table and listen to my mother and my daughter mm. both talking about their great love for little women and what it meant to them. Right. And I just think some of these beloved women's stories are a nice bonding. You know, so it's a way to have conversations and bonding and what did that book mean to you across generations. Mm-hmm. And how did you decide who to include and who to leave out? It was really difficult, yeah. and when I looked at my, if you look at my original book proposal, it was, many of the same writers are in here, but there were a lot that went, that did not make it in, and I have an entire notebook full where through the entire process, different, like, I, I kept rewriting the master list, Yeah, right. and I would be deleting people, like, you know, Ayn Rand was originally in there, and then eventually I got rid of Ayn Rand, and then... Sure. Um, I read about like Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz, who you did a yeah. podcast about, right. who I had never heard of before. And once I started reading about her, I said, she has to be in yeah, here. So some of, some of it was just that over the course of the research, I learned about new writers that I, and I started reading some of their uh, stories or, or materials and realized that they, they were not as well known and they had to be in there. So I, I tried to, keep things balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to be representative um, to the extent that I could. Right, I didn't right. cover a lot of the Europeans. Um, you know, it's mostly British and American with some Chinese, some Japanese, some South African, some Mexicans, you know, some uh, Brazilian. Like I tried to be representative and it kind of depended uh it, it it was hard. It was yeah. it was a brutal. Yeah. I, I have essays written that you know are sitting in my computer and you know didn't make it in there. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Okay, so let's uh, turn to uh, one example, Willa Cather. I asked if there were a few writers in particular you might like to discuss, so I could choose one. And one of the names you mentioned was Willa Cather. So yes. who was mm-hmm. Willa Cather? Well, she was a writer, editor, and journalist in the earliest 20th century. And mm-hmm. She won the Pulitzer Prize in 1922 for a book called One of Ours. 
Uh, she wrote 12 novels, short stories, poetry, and journalism over her career. And she was also, at one time, one of the most successful magazine editors yeah. um, at McClure's Magazine, who published a lot of very well-known writers. Uh, but she's probably best known, I think, Matt, today for her Nebraska trilogy, mm-hmm. which is O Pioneers, My Antonia, um, and A Lost Lady, Song of the Lark. Like she, you know, so she, yeah. she uh, kind of brought a new locale, or uh, she, she brought something new to fiction that hadn't, that wasn't really being done before when she started writing fiction. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. I, I, mm-hmm. uh, she's so famously associated with Nebraska, and she's been on our list uh, forever of episodes that we've been planning to do. So I'm glad we get to talk about her today. Great. She's. Great. Um, I didn't know until I read your book that her family was originally from Virginia. So what yeah. led to their move to Nebraska? How old was Willa at the time? Well, Willa was nine at the time, and she, her family had been in Virginia for several generations. Her mother was a Southern belle, and uh, they all, they, her family, her parents and uh, siblings lived with the grandparents in this old farm that they had for uh, a few generations. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that during the Civil War, uh, the family kind of split the uncles fought for the South, but the grandparents had fought for the North. Mm. And being in Virginia, which is the South, um, that didn't go over too well with some of the neighbors. And so uh, they woke up one night and their their barn was was burnt down. Mm. So someone had come, you know, someone had come and made a statement to the family by burning down the barn. And it, you know, the grandfather said, you know what, I'm not going to rebuild the barn and let's just pack up and get out of here before the house is next with all of us in it. So they kind of just said it's time to get a fresh start. Yeah. And there had been other parts of the family who had moved out to Nebraska. And so they went there to go meet up with the rest of their family. Yeah, uh, it was it was traumatic. It was a it was a big change, and she was uh, nine years old at the time. And what kind of community did they find in Nebraska? Well, they moved eventually to a town called Red Cloud, which was a very small town with a population of 1,000. It was, a, you know, compared to Virginia, which is warm and lush, uh, with lots of foliage and farmland, this was, it was Nebraska. It was the Great Plains. It was lots of very tall grass and bare, you know, uh, dark, you know grass and barren landscape and a huge sky and just miles and miles and miles of nothing but land as far as you could see. And it was just such a completely different physical landscape that, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of shocking. And she used to say, you know, she, she, she later wrote, um, there was nothing but land, not a country at all, but the material out of which countries are made. Mm. And, so in this, you know, so her she goes there, but they're in this very small town. Um, I think she found it quite um, prohibitive. It was, it was, the, you know, she was a bit of a tomboy, say the least. You know, she, they used to call her Willie. 
she wanted to be a doctor when she grew up. She used to deliver the mail on horseback. She mm. sometimes dressed like a boy. Uh, you know, she she didn't really fit in to the community. She was a bit of an outsider. And her family also, you know, they were an old Southern family who had been successful and, and somewhat powerful over the generations. And um, intellect was important. So her grandmother, she was homeschooled. Her grandmother had her reading Shakespeare and mm. learning Latin from a young age, which in that town was very unusual. You know, the one cultural, um, the, the one building in town that really, that, that Willa loved was the opera house. It was like this sort of, this sort of quiet little town, small population, lots of empty land, but there was a little opera house. Yeah. And so she loved the opera <laughs> and that inspired her to do, you know, she, like, like many of the, of the bookish broads. Um, and, you, and you think of Joe from little women too. They all loved theater and kind of making up stories and acting them out. And yeah. they definitely fit into that category. Yeah. Uh, and would you say that you, you see just as kind of a common theme for these writers that they were early readers or they were passionate readers, maybe somewhat isolated by their, from their, their circumstances or their surroundings a little bit. And, and they, they come to love the time that they spend alone with books. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, de that's definitely a common theme. You know, you, I think that like a, a writerly or artistic, uh, sensibility. I think he might be born with it, mm. but it has to be nurtured. Uh, ah. And and that you know, there's always. The, I was always the kid making up plays as a child. I was always writing in my notebooks and making up stories. Like some kids just do that, and it's po you know, po it's possibly a sense of isolation or feeling like they're an outsider or feeling like they just see the world from a different point of view. Um, ah. Or if you if you're not fitting in. Uh, I guess you become an observer of what's going on around you. And yeah. certainly all of the women in this book had that in some capacity. Yeah. I wonder if yeah. we'll see that change a bit, you know, looking back to my own childhood and just the, the long stretches where you'd be, where, you know, a, a child would be bored and would have to find something to fill time. And, uh, you know, today there's a lot of talk about how, uh, kids have a sort of structured life and they're taken to a lot of activities and their their days get full and they're exposed to all these things, which is great. But I'm kind of mindful of uh, an interview I read with uh, Bill Watterson, the, the Calvin and Hobbes mm -hmm. creator. And he said, you yes. know, the, the best thing my parents did for me was left me alone and I would go into my room and I would read these comics. And it was the, the I'd spend hours just loving the time that I spent with these comic books, which is not something that that any parent who's looking for for clubs or sports or activities would probably think of to uh, right. allow their, right. their child that many hours to do. But he he credited that with his whole career, basically. And I, I'm just wondering if, you know, 50 years, 100 years from now, people would look back at our era and not find all the examples of the Willa Cathers who were kind of free to, to try to fill something right. in their life and, and just had the room to do it. Right. It's, you know, it's because I have two children and my 13 year old loves to draw and, yeah. and she, um, you know, what, and the pandemic in a way is a blessing to us. Because yeah. 
she's not, the two of them are stuck here at home with me. And so they're not going um, to soccer practice and, you know, debate club and doing all of these things, getting into high school and call, you know, and throughout yeah. high school where everyone's obsessed with where are you going to go to college and what are you going to do for your career? You know, I find, so my, my daughter spends her time drawing and I try to encourage her to do that. Uh, with my son, it's of course with boys, it's video games. Yeah. And I, you know, it's like video games and boys, it's the bane of all parents' yeah. existence. <laughs> and we all say, what are we going to, like, there's no way to break them from yeah. it. Yeah. It's almost impossible. And especially when we're all working from home, we can't keep going in there and monitoring them and telling them to stop it. So what I've tried to do is say, okay, then, you know, in the summertime, I want you to go to learn coding and game design, but I also want you to go to film, you know, study film and yeah. storytelling. Like you have right. to find a way to say, okay, in those video games, what is the story that's being told and how could you write a better one? Yeah. Like, try to look at the creative part of it. But yeah, it's, it's tough when TikTok dancing and the Kardashians are the role models. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. I think that's what you're doing seems really smart to me. I always thought that as I was uh, putting my kids in piano lessons is thinking, you know, even if they you graduate from high school and stop playing the piano and never sit down at the bench again, they will appreciate music in a different way uh, for the rest right. of their lives. They'll that's be right. they'll be smarter about it, about what about what they're listening to. And and when they admire something, they'll have the tools to kind of think through Oh well, this is why this appeals to me so much, or this is why I think that that so and so is so good. And uh, it sounds like uh, that's a kind of way that hopefully it makes the the video games into more of a an informed uh, kind of way to spend time. Hmm. Time for another break. I better jump in. We got off track there a little bit. We got all geeky about parenting, which was my fault. But hey, don't worry. That was just a few bites of uh, an appetizer, a spinach salad, if you will, or kale, if you want to make jokes about a superfood. We will return with the meat and potatoes of our discussion with Lauren Marino about Willa Cather after this. Okay, so let's get back to Willa Cather. How did yes. she escape the farm, and what life did she want to pursue? How did she, what did she how, what did she do to get out? Well, she she always said she wanted to have an adventurous life. Yeah, uh, which I also think is a commonality in 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 all of these writers. Yeah, right? you, you grow up and say, "I want more than this." Some I courage, want more. I want to, yeah. I want to have an adventurous life. So what she did, she she wanted to become a doctor. She was distressed to find out that girls weren't allowed to become doctors. Mm. But she went to the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, uh, which you know was was fortunate. That was the big university. After really being homeschooled, uh, she started out studying science, probably because of her interest in medicine, and. 
she wrote an essay for the, um, I guess she, was, she, she wrote an essay for a class and her teacher put it in the school uh, newspaper. Hmm. And eventually when she saw that her teacher liked her writing, she started showing her more of it. And she ultimately ended up running the school literary magazine or newspaper and writing most of the content. Hmm. So it was in, it was in, college that she really started her journalism career uh on a you know on a small scale and from there she when she graduated she left and she moved to Pittsburgh and became a teacher um and then and started writing stories and doing sort of small town journalism but eventually uh she she had handed in her stories to Sam McClure, who had started McClure's magazine. Mm. And he had his own little publishing company and he collected them and published them as the Troll Garden. Mm. But he was so impressed with her grit and her kind of her personality that he had her come to New York and she met with him and he had been running the magazine himself, but he was a very brash and difficult man. And so people kept quitting on him. So he hired Willa to end up being the managing editor of McClure's magazine. Mm. He convinced her to move to New York. So she went to New York for six years and was the really the, the most powerful editor in American journalism at a time when journalism was really starting to have its moment and yeah. there were a lot of changes going on in the country and she was able to edit as the editor some um, incredible writers like Rudyard Kipling, Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson um, right but she you know being an executive is a it can be an exhausting life yeah and what what type of person I mean what comes across to me just from reading about her is Obviously, that she's very bright and that she's very determined. Uh, was she a, a larger-than-life personality? Was she quiet, quietly competent, or what was what type of personality did she have? Well, I, I get the sense, without having met her, I get the sense that she she hated mediocrity, mm. and mm-hmm. she so she was very critical. Yeah, but she was first and foremost very critical of herself. Yeah, and. I mean, that's really how she learned to write. She was not a natural born writer. It was, you know, she it was painstaking work to teach herself yeah, how to yeah. be a writer. And, you know, that's one thing I, I just always love hearing from about writers. They work really hard at it. It's right. not just a natural born talent. Like, <laughs> right. you know, when Joan Didion, for example, was five years old, her, she was bored. Her mother said, you know, stop whining, gave her a notebook. And she started copying Hemingway's sentences. Mm. And it was in copying Hemingway word for word that Joan Didion learned how to write. And, you know, I don't think the craft part of it is, um, you know, a lot of people don't see that part of the job. Uh, they see the romantic part of the job. But Willa worked very hard. She was very hard on her writers. I think she liked having a sense of authority. Uh-huh. Um, so I think she was probably a pretty formidable character. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and her work as an editor helped her own writing, right? She's tightening other people's sentences up and it teaches her to tighten her own sentences yeah. up. And, you know, journalists approach writing in a very different 
kind of way. It's not, you know, it's it's more, it's tighter, it's more straightforward, it gets to the point, it's succinct. Was she writing fiction all along, or was there a point where she decided, I'm succeeding in journalism, in editing, I'm I'm overseeing the work of all of these writers, but I want to write fiction myself, or I should be writing fiction myself, whether it's out of artistic ambition or or for financial reasons or whatever, but was that kind of the crossroads that she faced? Uh, yes. And it was a tough one for her yeah. because she was writing fiction, uh, but Sam McClure told her that she was a better executive than a fiction writer and that she better just stick to being an executive and being a journalist. Mm. And yeah, there's a, you know, it, there's a whole, I mean, women writers through history were told this over and over again. You know what? Stick to your knitting. You don't have talent. You're better at doing the job that you're doing than trying to go become a writer. Um, And, you know, one of the themes I think in Willa's work is that is, is how women were constantly underestimated uh, by men. And she herself was underestimated or, or not encouraged to be a fiction writer. And, uh, you know, he didn't, uh, McClure didn't want to lose his best executive. She, yeah, she turned yeah. that magazine into a huge success. Yeah. And for her, you know, she became very, um, she became successful. So for, she didn't need to write fiction for financial reasons because she all, she already had a she great was making job. A living. Yeah. Um, but she, but it was in her heart. She considered fiction a work, you know, she considered that an art form. Yeah. She really separated journalism from fiction. Right. And she did, she wrote a, um, her first novel, um, Alexander Bridge, which was not at all successful. And it also, because it wasn't really true to herself and her friend, Sarah Orne Jewett was advising her because, you know, they were, they had this correspondence in writing and was like, well, McClure expresses doubt over my talents. And I just don't know if I can, move into fiction. And uh, Sarah Orne Jewett said, you can write fiction, but you need to write from a tr- from your true self, mm. from, a, from a true place, as opposed to what you think people want to hear. You need to kind of go into that quiet center of who yeah. you are and of your life and write from that place. And that is what inspired her then to go back to Nebraska. Yeah. And start looking at all of the people, the the town, the immigrants in particular that she got to know as a child when she was delivering the mail on horseback. She got to get to know all of them. And she really, you know, she decided to write books about that experience. Did she physically return to Nebraska or was she writing about this from New York? I believe she was writing about them from New York, but she did go back to Nebraska later. Mm Mm-hmm. She also went, she, she eventually left and went out to um, the Southwest mm. and New Mexico, which is where she kind of had an epiphany. She saw the land in New Mexico kind of reminded her mm. in, in its own way, like yeah. the grandeur of it, yeah. the beauty of it, uh, reminded her of Nebraska and kind of brought her to that. That's it. That's what I need to write about this larger than like this land yeah. and this kind of wide open Face, yeah, you know, and in a way, like the blankness, like she she created her own identity in that, like it was like an empty slate that land, that it was an empty slate 
where the immigrants were coming in and trying to create something out of nothing. And she kind of started to look at that as, oh, well, that is where I, you know, I can create my own identity out of that land also. And so, um, you know, like my Antonia is, you know, she wrote it based on one of her childhood friends who was Czechoslovakian from Bohemian, whose father had killed himself and she became a housemaid in town and had to deal with a lot of, you know, dip. she, she watched the struggles of her friend and the difference between them. And that really became the basis of my Antonia. Yeah. And the heroic beauty of being out yeah. there on this unforgiving prairie. That's right. Mm. That's right. What do like you little think... house on the prairie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what do you think she discovered about the American character? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, I think the grit and resilience, Mm -hmm. right? The ability to persevere and make something out of nothing. Yeah. You know, she saw, like you said, a a heroic beauty in the struggles of these immigrants. Yeah. And, And their loneliness and their homesickness and their desire for connection. But she also felt that, like, she was very sympathetic towards to, to the Native Americans and having their land taken, but she did feel that immigrants needed to assimilate in a way into mm. the and, and to become Americans, mm-hmm. to become full Americans. Yeah, and women in particular, I think she saw they were constantly being underestimated. They had to deal with a double standard. It was a lot harder for them to pursue the lives that they wanted. And so I think she saw the the American character and women in particular, yeah. really like the underdog to be able to rise above and really go be resilient and create something. Yeah. I had as a follow-up question, what did she discover about women in particular? But as you were answering your question, I thought, I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> I won't even bother asking it because it sounded so much like it could be applying to the women. Right. Well, and I think that, I think that in her, um, you know, she experienced that in her own life and she was frustrated by it. And so she worked very hard to prove everyone wrong and to really become the best writer she could be with painstaking practice and to become a powerful executive by being authoritative and, and critical and tough. Um, you know, and in the song of the lark, she, she writes about a Midwestern woman who moves to New York to go become an opera singer and how that, the, the struggles, the unique, the unique struggles of being a woman in the arts and trying to make it. Yeah. And happily, uh, she was not one of those authors who was only discovered years or, or decades or centuries after her death, but she was successful in her day. She won the Pulitzer Prize. She, she wrote yep. bestsellers. She was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, yes. Where should readers start? Would you have them start with O Pioneers or uh, My Antonia or something else? I think I like my Antonia because I just yeah. think it's um, I, the character is it's just a beautiful story and I in a way it's like it's like Jim Burden is like Willa Cather mm. you know the, the care it's it's, the, it's a fictional memoir written from a man's point of view which was quite controversial at the time for Willa to be writing under you know from the mm. point of view of a man yeah. but the you know, the, the man grows up in the same town as this young bohemian girl, and they cross paths again and again. Over time, he goes to New York and becomes a successful lawyer, and she's, you know, is left 
to keep her family uh, farm going and, you know, raise and feed all of her children. So it's like, you know, Willa kind of compares the differences in the immigrant and the American, the American who was not an immigrant and the educated and the uneducated and the male versus the female. She, it just, it, it, and it talks a lot about the land and the difficulty of it. And what does it mean to go to New York and get out of there? It covers mm. so many of the themes yeah. uh, of her own life and the things that were important to her. So I think that's a, and it's a, just a beautiful story and yeah. sad and lovely at the same time. So we've sort of, I think, touched upon how Willa Cather fits in with the other bookish broads and, and some of the common themes and patterns that we see in the other women you've selected for the book. Is she unique in some way? Was there anything about her that, that stands out that you didn't see in other reflected in any of the other women? Oh, dear. That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would have to probably spend like an hour thinking about that to come up with an answer. Because, because I could say, well, she dressed like a man to get into establishments she couldn't get into. And I'd say, well, but so did... George know. Sand, or yeah. <laughs> right, so did George Sand, and so did Colette. Um, right. You know, many women had dressed up like men <laughs> in order to get into these literary establishments that would not allow women. Yeah. I could say she was really tough and critical and authoritative, but there are other women like that, too. Yeah. Um, oh, let me throw something out then. If if we're trying sure. to persuade people to read Willa Cather, you know, we, we've had some authors on here who have talked about how underrepresented that period of 1900 to 1920 kind of is, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of literature and a lot of literary history kind of takes place between the lost generation and World War II. But yes. there's some really interesting writers. Edith Wharton is one. Yes. Uh, Booth Tarkington is another. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's some really interesting writers from that period and she reminds me of that, that this is kind that's kind of her era. She's a little older than the Hemingways and Fitzgeralds. If someone is interested in Nebraska and that part of the country and that immigrant experience there and the, the migrant experience there, and then just the idea that she ended up kind of also succeeding in Pittsburgh and New York and kind of... Uh, that's not a, a direction that you see. You know, there's sort of this westward movement. You don't always see the the movement back east, uh, movement for, back east especially yeah. for a woman at that time. She's just a just a wonderful figure. I'm glad that we had the chance to talk about her today. Yes, now she is. She's, and you could go on and on. She she really is incredible, and she's been criticized as being a little nostalgic mm. in her writing. But yeah. she, you know, she at that time she witnessed the dramatic changes that were going on in the world and in this country. And she hated those changes. Mm. She wanted a simpler life, a simpler time. And yeah. that's what she brought us in her writing. Right. Well, the book is called Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves into History. Lauren Marino, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Wasn't that fun? Lauren Marino is like, she's like Goldilocks for me, and her book is like Goldilocks too. The the looks at these women are not too short, not too long, not too in the weeds, but with enough detail and depth 
to be interesting. She has really gotten in right. And the illustrations of the women in this book are great, too. A great book to own. It's called Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves Into History. Available now wherever you buy your books. We will be back with more Willa Cather soon. And Lolita is on the horizon. Oh, boy. (laughs) These are going to be some special episodes. We have got some stuff cooking up for you on Lolita. More George Eliot is on the horizon as well. Speaking of bookish broads, she's like the the queen of the bookish broads, I think. Well, I guess there's there are a lot of contenders for that title, but she's up there. Very, very smart. We have an interesting angle on her coming up too. That's going to be in a few weeks. Mike Palindrome is in store for us all too, and many of our many other guests and many other good shows so please do join us for those i hope you're all doing well people there is light at the end of the tunnel let's hope so anyway and my heart goes out to all of you who have emailed me recently to talk about the losses you faced and all the other sadnesses my heart is with you i'm sorry this has been such an agonizing year we will survive it because we must and books do help great minds have been there before us and they gave us their gifts in stories and words and characters and thoughts. We are teamed up with LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. Learn more at www.thepodglomerate.com and historyofliterature.com. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature if you'd like to and if you are able. And at historyofliterature.com slash shop if you're more of a one-time impulse purchase kind of a person. There's an option there to buy me a virtual coffee if you'd like. But hey, if you'd rather call that a virtual tea or a virtual beer or a virtual glass of wine, even a virtual shot of whiskey, I'm okay with that. More than okay. I'd be delighted and very appreciative. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.